Please stand as we sing. Not sure whose car keys these are. We'll just leave them over here if that's okay. So um, it's good to be here today. I'll start by saying I had a dream last night that I was preaching at a different church and I got there and forgot my sermon and was late and all of this stuff. So I'm feeling a little nervous this morning, I guess. It was not a happy dream, but it made me feel like I'm back to being a pastor again because I used to have those dreams all the time when I was pastoring a church. Well, those of you who, uh, who know me well know that I'm very happy uh, in my home here in Houghton. And I I call it my new home. I mean, we've been here for three years at this point, but it feels like home to me now. And uh, I love living here and I love living in this little town. I love living in Western New York. Um, It's a good place, I think, to set down roots. It's a good place to raise children. I heard my children calling out during the silent prayer time. Thanks, Lucy. That was good. Um, (laughs) It's a great place to be. And it's not least a great place to be because we have beautiful summers here. And I have just thoroughly enjoyed this summer. Uh, My friends from back in Pennsylvania and southern New Jersey where I was raised just can't believe it when I tell them that we only have a window air conditioner in our house 
only in the bedroom, and we've only had to turn it on once this whole summer. Uh, it's been gorgeous, and we just we feel right at home. Uh, when I went home to visit, it was 93 and miserable, and everybody was just moving from air conditioning to air conditioning. And just to come back here was wonderful. To have it be whatever, 68 degrees yesterday was wonderful. I just loved it. But, um, so I, I feel a deep allegiance to Western New York that people feel towards their home. Now, I say all that because I'm going to share a piece of devastating news. There is one crucial way in which my allegiance to Western New York is still divided, and that is my undying love for Philadelphia professional sports. I grew up loving Sixers basketball, Flyers hockey, Phillies baseball, Eagles football, and I can't and won't give them up. I'm not sure. I wrote, I can't give them up, and then I said, well, no, I won't. Whatever the case, I don't know if it's I can't or I won't, but I'm not giving them up. So the Phillies, of course, I don't know anybody who follows baseball, the Phillies have been a major disappointment this year. They spent more money than anybody else in baseball almost, and their team is terrible. Uh, So it's not any good. But so naturally, around July, my attention started to turn to the Eagles. And this past Thursday, the Eagles had their first preseason game. And uh, I haven't had to make this shift so early for the last few years because the Phillies have been really good. So I haven't paid attention to the Eagles until the, till the October or so, you know. But this year, I found myself getting into Eagles training camp because I was following, you know, philly.com backslash sports. That's my homepage. Uh, <laughs> so I found myself just following training camp, following what the players were doing, you know, following the position-by-position position battles for starters and that kind of thing. I was excited reading about Michael Vick, our quarterback, and how he might be better this year than he has been. And, and I found myself just thinking, you know, could this be the year? You know, could this be finally the year we break through? Could we be a good team? Could we really even maybe make the Super Bowl? Then out of nowhere, something shocking and tragic happened. Garrett Reed, who is the oldest son of the Eagles head coach, 29 years old, died suddenly. He was working as a strength and conditioning coach for the team, so he was at training camp. He had had some addiction issues in the past with drugs. Nobody knows quite what happened, but he was discovered dead in his dorm room at Lehigh University where they have training camp. Uh, No one really knows, again, what happened, but it's just sad. It's tragic when anybody dies, but a a 29-year-old especially just seems wrong. Now, it's at that point when I was confronted with this kind of brutal, shocking reality that I realized I had been asking the wrong questions all along (laughs) about the Eagles this year. You know, I had been asking if we could make the Super Bowl and win the Super Bowl when, in actuality, I should have been asking, you know, are Coach Reed and his family going to be okay? Are they going to make it somehow through this unspeakable tragedy? Jesus has a way of looking at people and making them realize that they're asking the wrong questions. And this happens sometimes when I pray, when I, when I have this list of things that I want God to do. And he sort of laughs before he does his own thing uh, and makes me realize that I'm actually very glad that he didn't do the things that I had assigned for him to do that day. And and a similar thing happens in this story where uh, a man asks Jesus, he comes to Jesus, he has one question in his mind, what must I do to be saved? I am making all kinds of noise here. Can I hop over here? Up there? 
Is it okay if I hop over here, Mike? Because I'm just, I'm making this rattly and I don't like it. When I preached for the first time and took my shoes off, that won't happen again. I'll, yeah, this is as far stripped down as we're going. But. So a man comes to Jesus and he has one question on his mind. What must I do to be saved? And Jesus, of course, is a good Jew and he points him back to the book and he says, well, you tell me, what's the book say? What do you, what do you have to do to be saved? What do you see in the law? What's it say there? And the man is sharp, right? He, he, he might be a lawyer, but he's a sharp man. He's a good lawyer. And he knows that it's not about some minimum amount of works that he has to get done. That's not what makes him him saved. He knows somehow that it's about love. And he says, well, this is what I see in the book. I see love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, in essence, good job. Thumbs up. That is what it's about. Do this and you will live. But then we get to what I think is the most interesting phrase in the story. Jesus said, or he says, but, but he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? He wanted to justify himself. There are a couple ways to look at that phrase. When we use that phrase, usually we, we just commonly mean that he wanted to look good in front of other people. He, he wanted to prove that he was already doing a good job. He wanted Jesus to tell him that he was doing a good job preferably in front of all of these other people so that everyone would know that he was one of the good guys. But, but a somewhat different meaning is the idea, of the theological idea of being justified. Because what the man is talking about, the question he's asking, what must I do to be saved, is a theological question about justification. How am I justified? How am I made right with God? How am I saved? And Jesus' response is, well, like you said, sir, it's mostly a matter of love, right? Love God, love your neighbor, God takes care of it. And this man is not happy with that answer. Why? Because what Jesus said to him is, God will take care of it. You love other people and God will take care of it. But this man doesn't want God to justify him. He wants to justify himself. Isn't it good news what Jesus said? You don't have to justify yourself. God will take care of it. You love other people and love God and you'll be fine. But, but this man is dissatisfied because it's simply too easy. The news was too good. Right? Uh, this man was an expert in the law. He could parse the ancient texts. He, he could debate minute points uh, of the law. And, and, and even so, like I say, he's a good man and he knows that it's not the law that saves him, that, that it was loved, but that it was love that saves him. But, but I think further deep down, he hoped that his hard work to understand these ancient texts, to understand God's law, to understand God's mind would earn him something extra. Everybody who loves God and others might be right with God, but I think he hoped to be a little more right with God than others. He wanted to justify himself in every sense of the word. He wanted Jesus to commend him out loud, yes, but, but he wanted to make himself right with God. And so it's from this web of mixed motives that the man says, who's my neighbor? 
Now, that seems like a logical enough question, I suppose, right? I mean, Jesus has just said, hey, love God, love your neighbor. And the man says, okay, well, then who's, who's my neighbor? But because we know the man's heart, that he wants to justify himself, we know that the question is not really an innocent question after all. The question is actually a variation on the question that we've been asking these last few times that I've been preaching with you, right? Who is it that I have to love? When push comes to shove, who am I responsible for? Do I have to love my family, my friends, my neighbors? And of course, the converse is, Jesus, please tell me then who I'm not responsible for. Who do I not have to love? Who can I safely ignore and still get into heaven? Who can I choose to put away in this box and pretend they don't matter anymore? I'm going to talk about asking the wrong question. (laughs) That's the wrong question to ask anyone. It's definitely the wrong question to ask Jesus. And just like that story about Garrett Reed, the coach's son of the Eagles, jarred me out of my other questions and into new questions, Jesus jars the man out of his theological gymnastics by confronting him with this brutal reality. The man says, who is my neighbor? And Jesus says, a man was going down a dangerous road from Jerusalem to Jericho. He was robbed, stripped, beaten, left for dead. Whoa. What kind of answer is that? Around that time, I picture the man's eyes growing wider and wishing that he had asked Jesus a different question because he didn't expect an answer like this. And frankly, I imagine he, he, he was a little bit annoyed at the answer as well. He had spent his life in the books and he didn't need some heart-tugging story about a fictional man getting beaten to death to make his point. He was asking Jesus a theological question and Jesus is like, there's a man who's dying there. But, but what Jesus is doing here is reminding him of something very, very vitally important when your whole life is about justifying yourself. You become blind to the most desperate suffering of other people. When that's the first question on your mind, who do I have to love? What do I have to do? Who am I free not to love? That's evidence that you haven't actually encountered a person as a person for a very long time. Right? When he has seen someone suffering, presumably, he has been consumed with the question of whether or not he has to love them, whether or not he's responsible for them. And because he's been consumed with that question, he hasn't actually loved anyone for a very long time. When Jesus starts off the story with the robbing and the beating and the leaving for dead, it's not just because he knows how to spin a good yarn. He's doing it because only the most graphic story is going to wake this man up from his slumber. Just like the, the death of Garrett Reed reminded me that, oh, these football players and coaches, they're like actual people. They're not robots made for my entertainment. They're real people, right? This story, in the same way, wakes this man up to a truth. If I see someone in need and my first question is about me, I'm not loving them. I'm asking the wrong question. There's a man suffering, bleeding, and dying in the road. There's a dead 29-year-old son of a football coach. This is not about me and my neurotic suffering about whether I'll be saved or not. This is about the person who is suffering. Jesus goes from this place, then, in the story to talk about different ways to respond to people who are suffering. And they each highlight the point that I've just made. A priest sees the man, and as soon as he sees him, he does what? He says, oh, 
I don't see him after all. I'm going to the other side of the road. A Levite does the same thing. He sees the man, and as soon as he sees him, he pretends not to see him and passes without looking at him. Again, the priest and the Levite intentionally blind themselves to the suffering man because the suffering man makes it harder for them to live with themselves. Does that make sense? He blinds themselves to the suffering of other people because their suffering is inconvenient for them. They see a suffering person and immediately think about themselves. How will this suffering person impact me? But a Samaritan sees him and doesn't look away, but he takes pity on him, dresses, bandages his wounds, pays for his medical care. Let me back out of the story for a second just to say this parable really bothers me. And it bothers me a lot because it seems like the parable that most often comes up in my life, like on a regular basis. It just seems like there are countless times when suffering stares me square in the face. And often it happens on the road. I don't know, when I pastored a church, I lived about 20 minutes from the church. Because real estate values were real high right around the church, but we could afford to live about 20 minutes away. And it seemed like all the time when I would drive into church, I would see somebody by the side of the road with a flat tire. And I think, could there be any better parallel to this parable, <laughs> right? There's a guy on his way to church, and he's thinking, I got to get to church. I got a job to do here this morning, you know? And I think to myself, should I just stop and help the guy and then show up half an hour late to church? You know, w- will the pastoral relations committee believe me, right, that I really stopped to help a guy with a flat tire? Or will they just think their 20-something pastor just slept in? You know, what, what will they think? It's a tough parable because it seems to come up again and again in my life. And frankly, it's a tough parable because there's so much suffering in the world today that I don't know how I could possibly be a good Samaritan to everyone. Right? There's so much suffering that I don't know how to do this for everyone. It seems to me, though, that that this parable is not mainly about what you're supposed to do in a given situation. And I say that because of the purpose of the parable in the first place. Remember, the man comes to Jesus and says, what's the minimum I have to do? And Jesus' response is to make him realize this is a worthless question. So I think it's a misreading to think then that what he does is tell us what the Samaritan is, is really the minimum that you're supposed to do. Does that make sense? If a man comes saying, what do I have to do? Really, what do I have to do? And Jesus is like, you know what? That's not the right question. Then it seems unlikely he'd say, and here's the real minimum you have to do. Go from here and do exactly that for everyone. It seems unlikely to me that he would do that. This parable is more, I think, about how the Good Samaritan saw the beaten man rather than the exact way that he cared for him. After all, when you think about it, the Good Samaritan could have done more, right? I mean, why didn't he leave the man, I don't know, money to get back on his feet and get a new job after he got kicked out of the inn? I mean, why didn't he offer the man job training? Why didn't he go and and fetch the best doctor that he knew and get him to come back to the inn? Why didn't, frankly, he go to the government and advocate for better club control laws so that there wouldn't be people beaten to death on the road in the first place, right? There are all kinds of things the Good Samaritan could have done but didn't do. But the crucial distinction seems to me that that only one of the three men looked at the man who was suffering as a person and not just as an obstacle to them doing something else that was important. Only the good Samaritan looked at the man and decided, you know what, the situation is not about me anymore. 
It's not about whether or not what I have to go and do is valuable. It's now about the man who's suffering. It's not necessarily, in other words, about what I do every time I see someone with a flat tire. It's about whether or not I'm willing to stop pretending I don't see the man with the flat tire. Does that make sense? And there may be different ways of responding to that, depending on the situation in my life, my own giftedness. Frankly, I'm not much help around a flat tire, but whatever. Um, you know, the different, different ones of us in this congregation may be called on to deal differently with that, different gifts and different situations. But the fact is, all of us are supposed to see the man who's suffering and not think about first, boy, this is really inconvenient that you're suffering. It's inconvenient for me. Now, the whole sermon series I've been working on here is about this sort of thing. We've been talking about how easy it is to dehumanize people, how easy it is to put people in boxes. And whether or not the people in our lives are right or wrong, it's not like Jesus to take away their humanity. It's not like Jesus to reduce people to allies or obstacles to getting his own way. It's not like Jesus to make people less than they are. It's about Jesus always seeing more in people than they could imagine in themselves. This is why the Levite and priest fail in the story. They look at the man and they see only an obstacle to getting their work done. And the Samaritan passes the test, not because he did everything, but because he saw a suffering person as a person in and of himself and gave himself to the suffering person. So what can we learn from the story about how we deal with other people? Well, I think the main thing is that we need to be willing to open our eyes to human suffering. As I've said before, I think in our world today, we are confronted on a never, a a totally unique scale with the amount of suffering in the world. Because of the great communication technology that helps us keep in touch with so many people, we're also aware of so much more suffering. And most of us cope with it by shutting down at some point and saying, I can't look at it. I can't look at it. There's a point where I just can't do it. I can't do anything about it, so I can't look at it. We can know today about human suffering in Syria, Egypt, China, Russia, Nigeria, Greece, Kosovo, Germany, Colorado, all these places that my grandfather growing up would have never been acquainted with the suffering in those places. And this is not to mention, you know, the the suffering of our neighbors and friends, the people right here in this room. And sometimes we even need to shut ourselves off from their suffering. For our intents and purposes, what we do is we we shut something down so we say, it's not real anymore. It's just not real to me. I can't deal with it. It doesn't exist. For us to sleep well at night, we do that. For us to sleep well at night, we have to pretend that human suffering doesn't dominate the world the way it actually does. But I think we need to open our eyes to it. We're not called on to address every problem. Jesus didn't heal everybody. Remember, what set the Good Samaritan apart was not so much what he did, but who he was, how he saw and understood the other person. And we can't take care of everyone. But if we're going to be like Jesus, we can't close our eyes to them either. We can't pretend it's not real. The vast majority of suffering people in the world, we can't help, but we can't pretend they're not real. In the story of the Samaritan, it's that willingness the Samaritan had that moved Jesus to ask a whole different question. Jesus says, you asked me, who's my neighbor? Instead, I'm telling you, how can I be a neighbor to others? 
is the question you need to ask. Now, I'm going to say something here controversial. I want you to listen with discernment because I don't want to warp the words of Jesus. But this is how I read it. I think that if the priest or Levite had stopped to help the man, he might not have, they might not have done exactly what the Samaritan did. I don't know. That's just what I think. I think perhaps if the priest had stopped and said, you know what? I don't know how to help you right now, and I can't go with you right now, but I will stay with you, and I will pray until someone else comes along. I think that would have been a faithful response for what a priest is called to do. I don't think he would have been a bad guy in the story if he hadn't done all of this stuff. I think that because you have a different way of being a neighbor in the world than I do. But what's supremely important is that when I encounter someone who's suffering, I bring every gift that God has given me into that suffering. And you bring every gift that God has given you into that suffering. And I think there are bound to be different gifts for a priest or a Samaritan. I think that's okay. When we open our eyes, when we say, those are real people, those are real people, I need to be a neighbor to them in some way, then we're on the right road, regardless of what exactly we do. We put aside the questions of whether we're obligated to help and say, I'm here, you're real. What does it mean for me to be a neighbor to you now, in this place, in this time? Now, put that aside. That's a very easy thing to preach about. That's a really hard thing to do in real life. And I have two examples just to to show you, just kind of demonstrate. This is what I mean when I say it. The one is comical. The one is not at all comical. The comical one first. And this is probably bad to lead with the comical, but whatever, I'll do it. The comical one first. Uh, My wife and I, and this is probably like many spouses, um, when Jill has a problem in her life and she brings it to me, this is stereotypical, but I'm a man. And so what do I want to do? Solve the problem. And this is stereotypical, but Jill's a woman, so what does she want me to do? Listen to her, right? Be present with her. And I'm already, you know, and at my best, I do that. At my best, I listen, right? And I chill, and I just chill out. But at my worst, I'm scrambling to solve the problem for her. Now, sometimes when I'm scrambling to solve problems, I look at myself and say, noble me, right? I am trying to solve this woman's problems even though she doesn't want them solved, right? (laughs) She would rather just feel miserable, but I am going to solve her problems because I know what that's, that's what's best. But deep down, I know that's not true. The reason I try to solve her problems is because it's terribly inconvenient for me when she has problems, right? When she has problems, right, our house is not ruled by the same happiness that it is otherwise. And I'm a very kind of emotional temperature kind of person. And so when one person in the room is not happy, it's really hard for me. Right? And so when I'm scrambling about to solve her problems, it's so that I feel better about what's going on. Do you see how that fits in with what I'm saying? Right? What's my call in that time if I'm going to be like the Good Samaritan? Well, it's different in every situation. It's different in every situation. But it mostly means that I put myself at her disposal and not secretly be trying to make the situation better for me while pretending that I'm making it better for her. Right? The Good Samaritan, the story means give yourself to Jill when she's suffering. Don't make this about you. The not-so-comical example. When I lived in New Jersey, like I say, I grew up there, and I lived near a little town which was among the roughest little towns in New Jersey. It was kind of a micro-urban area, if you will. It was real small. It's just one square mile, but it had a lot of the same issues that urban areas have. 
And uh, for seven summers of my life, from my senior year in high school through my senior year in seminary, I worked as a day camp counselor over the summers in this little town at my home county YMCA. I always liked doing kind of day camping kind of things, but I didn't want to do a specifically Christian thing. I just wanted to kind of be with kids in this community, and I felt like that was my chance to really connect with them. And uh, so I, I loved those kids, and I loved the chance to do that. It was always uh, an interesting dichotomy of kids because there were some really well-off kids, and then there were kids who were not well-off, and in that part of the world it was primarily down a color line. So there were white kids who were really well-off, and there were black kids who really weren't. And I used to you know, hang around after day camp and play basketball with the kids, and they would all kind of make fun of me, and I'd make fun of them. And it was, it was a, a good time and a good period of my life. I mean, I wouldn't have kept doing it for seven years if it didn't mean a lot to me. So yesterday, I'm on Facebook, and I discover that one of the kids, he's not a kid anymore, he's 25, was shot and killed. And he had been in and out of trouble with the law, and I don't know precisely what happened. Um, but, and this is not a kid I had thought about forever. It wasn't like I had, you know, an after-school special based on me and the kid or anything. It wasn't like I had reached in and tried to help him out. But it's just a kid that I remember so well. And a kid who was sort of emblematic of a group of people that I had tried to pour my life into. And to find out that he had, had died that way in suspicious circumstances, it brought a whole host of feelings up. And I have to say, the first feeling that it brought up to me was anger. How dare he? Right? Doesn't he know that I and other people poured a lot of my life into him? Why would he go down that road? Why would he put himself in these situations when there are all sorts of adults who wanted to love him and bring him into a different way of living? How dare he? Which, of course, belied what was going on just a little bit beneath the surface, which was, could I have done more? Right? If I had hung around more, or if I had told him about Jesus explicitly, or if I had gotten connected to a church, or if I had done something else, might he have gone down a different path? As I was sitting around reflecting on that last night, I realized, oh, this is just like the Good Samaritan, because there's a family suffering, and my first thought is, boy, this is really hard for me. Does that make sense? At that moment, it's not about me and my neurotic need to be affirmed as the guy who came in and helped. It's about the kid and his family. And I don't know exactly how to give myself to them from here. I probably won't do anything, frankly. But it's about them now. And it's not about me. It's not about my need to be affirmed as, as a good guy in the situation anymore or the guy who came in and saved the day. Those two stories just leaped out at me and said, this is what it's about. It's about being present with people who are suffering, not making yourself feel better because you're helping them as they're suffering. All right, I'll close now, but I want to challenge you to do three things as kind of a strategy to be able to be more like the Good Samaritan. First, my challenge is be mindful. When you find yourself turning away from suffering, take both hands and pull your neck back and make yourself look. And I don't mean that you have to look at every grotesque picture of human suffering. I'm not saying physically you need to look at it. But confess that it's real. When you start to want to live spiritually as if that's not a reality, confess it is a reality. For you to want to pretend that suffering isn't real means that 
well, at least for me, I won't put it on you, but for me, when I turn away from suffering, it's because I'm secretly afraid that God can't handle it or that God is not big enough to handle suffering. And so I can't look at it. I can't confess it's real. Be mindful of that in your own life. Be mindful of your need to turn away. Second, be open to interruption. Um, I was walking with a friend the other day, and he reminded me of, of this quote from an old Notre Dame professor that Henry Nowen talks about. He says, you know, my whole life I've been complaining that my work was constantly being interrupted until I discovered that my interruptions were my work. If we really believe that God makes us able to reflect his presence to each other and makes that part of what everyone can do, then that includes the people who interrupt us. But how do we expect to be able to look at the stranger in the middle of the road and see a person if we can't see it in our own spouse when they interrupt us? Or if we can't see it in our own children when they interrupt us? Or our colleagues or our friends? If we look at everyone else who's sitting in this room as an interruption to our real life, then we don't stand a chance at knowing what the Good Samaritan would do out there. I might not know how to help a guy with a flat tire, but I might have a better idea if I start being a good neighbor to my wife, to my kids, and to all of you when you interrupt my grand plans for my life. Third, and this is really a challenge, think about one specific person with a face, one person you know who is suffering, who you just can't bring yourself to face it. This could be an old friend with cancer that you just can't bring yourself to call, It could be a friend you know who's struggling in their marriage or as a parent. It could be a child you know who's having a hard time in school. It could be a parent of young kids who feels exhausted, a parent of older kids who feels disappointed. Whoever it is, think about that one person who is suffering, who you have closed your eyes to, and make a choice to reach out in some way. Give a call. Renew the relationship. Ask them how they are and listen for the answer. Make a few minutes or make an hour or make a day just about that person and not any other agenda in your life. More than likely, you'll discover a few things. You'll be glad that you renewed your relationship with that person. You'll be amazed at what God does in the midst of suffering. And you might just find out that by giving yourself to them, you'll receive back more than you gave. Let's pray together. God, it's so tempting in our world to imagine that suffering doesn't exist. It's easy in a place like Houghton. That's part of what makes it wonderful. We thank you for that. And yet we know that when we're attentive, there's plenty of suffering, even in our own midst, and certainly suffering around the world. And God, we confess that we don't know how to spring into action and do exactly what the Samaritan did in all of these circumstances, or even in any one of them. And yet, God, today we ask for the strength to open our eyes, to see the person who's suffering and not look away, to not walk to the other side of the road, and not to think about ourselves first, but to find ways to open ourselves to them so that you can pour through us and spread your love to that person as well who's in need. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.
please stand and join us as we sing. Sometimes I think, what will people say of me when I'm only just a memory, when I'm home where my soul belongs? Was I love when no one else would show up? Was I Jesus to the least of us? Was my worship more than just a song? I want to live like that and give it all I have so that everything I say and do points to you. If love is who I am, then this is where I peace and sure and certain knowledge that God's kingdom has come and is coming.